Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Welcome back to another episode of The Thinking Leader. Bryce, my good friend, who do we have on today as our guest? Oh, I am so excited because we have the wonderful Rose Fast is our guest today. Excellent. Rose is the founder of Fast Forward, a boutique consulting company in New York that I had the pleasure of working with several years ago. And she's also the author of a book that I just really love, The Chocolate Conversation. Lead Bittersweet Change, Transform Your Business. And she's got a new book out too, The Leadership Conversation. Making Bold Change One Conversation at a Time. Rose, it is so wonderful to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here, and it's wonderful to see you again. So just to dive right into it, I would love it if you could share with our listeners the origin story of the chocolate conversation and what you mean by the chocolate conversation. So I was in uh, my sophomore year at Boston University, and I got an invitation to a BYCO, Bring Your Own Chocolate Party. Um, and that appealed to me because all the bring your own booze parties were quite boring. And basically, you hold this glass and you try to make it work. <laughs> um, so I thought since, you know, I'm a chocolate aficionado uh, and it's something that I had in common with all these people, it would be a lot of fun. So I brought my killer chocolate cake, intending to be the hit of the party. Uh, and I got in there, and there was a table laden with the likes of which I have never seen confections of this nature. Uh, and my little killer <laughs> chocolate cake had its poultry little position. Um, but there was all kinds of decorative mousses and this and that and the other. The thing that I found most interesting is that the people that I met there, while we all had this uh, love of chocolate in common, there were some real chocolate snobs in the group. Um, and I had to laugh. There was one woman, I'm of Italian origin, so I'm not overweight, but I actually have a figure. And this girl had to run around the shower twice before she could get wet. I was convinced <laughs> of it. She was this thin. You know how you love that type. So, um, a guy was talking to her about his love of chocolate and he mentioned something about Snickers bars and she basically gave him a look and said, when I eat chocolate, it has to have a percent of Keiko and uh, I have to savor it for a long time and I'm not gonna have these calories if it's not great. And he looked at me and he said, whoa. Um, the long and short of it was when I left that party, I realized that while we all had something in common about the love of chocolate, our standards for what that looked like were quite different. Years later, I was sitting in an all-company meeting um, at Xerox, my alma mater, when it was in its heyday. And the CEO was uh, standing up, talking to all of us leaders, and basically rolling out a new strategy. 
He thought he was very clear. Everybody left that meeting, had their own interpretation, went back to their different functions and basically rolled out what didn't even look like what he had spoken about. We all got reeled back in again. And he said, you know, this isn't working. Why are you not listening to me? And it dawned on me that we were having a chocolate conversation. And it was the beginning of what I began to realize was a metaphor for how all these things work. A simple concept like chocolate could be interpreted in so many different ways. And here was a complex strategy they were trying to get across. Of course, in your business, you do this for a living. So you know what it takes to break this thing down. And so I began to realize, like my cake, there were layers to a chocolate conversation. The worldview layer, which is really invisible. It's the thing that informs the way you think and the way you speak, but people don't see it until they see your standard. So in the, in the perspective of that young lady that thought she needed a certain percent of Keiko, I got to her standard. And whatever worldview it was that was informing that standard clearly was all about her figure, calories, all of that. But you don't know that until you get somebody's standard. My father was a World War II Marine. And he would tell us, be up at 0600, ready for company. I got that. As a leader, if you were late to my meetings, no one understood that being on time was being late. Uh, but I had a standard because I was informed by a different worldview. The last layer is the concern. It gets expressed in the way of that woman looking at him and saying, Snickers, oh my God. Uh, or someone in a strategy conversation looking and saying, no, that doesn't meet my need. And for most leaders, when people express a concern, they see it as whining, moaning, uh, bitching, uh, not being in line. Uh, and really it is, I have an unmet need. And that unmet need is that my standards in conflict with yours and I need to understand at a deeper level where we can kind of communicate and meet. So I will close out this portion by saying that while there are a lot of conversations regarding Steve Jobs, um, the thing that I appreciated most about him, and he was you know, not a perfect leader, none of them are, leadership's very messy, is that he took what was an unspoken concern at the time when people were feeling down and he wanted to make entertainment easy, and he gave them a thousand songs in their pocket. Uh, no one ever dreamed they needed a thousand songs in their pocket. But what I loved about it is that he set a new standard for the industry and a whole new worldview of how people were going to listen to music. And Sony should have probably had that, but Apple got it. He changed the conversation. He changed the conversation. And this is something, and of course he was addicted to relevance. The whole idea of starting with the concern first, and that's what I just spoke to you about earlier about this leader I've been working with. Start with the concerns people have, level up to the standards you're setting to meet those needs, and then talk about your worldview. Turn that conversation upside down. Interesting. Well, that's that's wonderful. I mean, it, 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 it reminds me of, it, it, it's uh, 
it's a mantra that, that my mentor, Alan Mulally, uses a lot, but I think it either comes from, from Drucker or Deming, I'm not sure which one, or, or actually Stephen Covey, I think it comes from, which is that seek understanding before seeking under, to be understood. Yes. And yes. it's so important, Absolutely. you know, it's so simple to say, but it's so hard for most leaders to do because their ego gets in the way. Yes. And very often, if you can balance inquiry with declaration, um, I often say to my leaders, when someone comes up to you and asks a question, it's okay to be rhetoric. Yeah. You know, what, what brings you to that question? What's behind that? Uh, can you say a little more? Just to give a person a chance, one, for you to think as a leader so you don't have one of these rapid responses that doesn't look like you've even thought about it, and two, to give the other individual an opportunity to expand yeah. their thinking, get deeper into it. Um, I know it sounds really, really elementary, but I, I've always felt this way, even as a kid, that what happens in a conversation matters. And as a leader, the, the days of the casual conversation right. are over. <laughs> you can't just walk down the hall and do a flyby. People take it too seriously. Uh, and when someone stops you, I recently had a very senior leader at Chick-fil-A uh, mention to me that someone threw something out at him and he felt the need to solve it in the moment and felt if he didn't, he was going to have a very bad reaction. He ended right. up with a bad reaction. He, he fired out. And I said, it's perfectly okay to say to someone, you know, you've given me something to think about. Um, I don't want to do a disservice to you or the seriousness of this topic. I'd like to go back and come back to you with something substantive. So I'm going to take it with me and get back. Um, it's a way of not letting someone co-op your opportunity to have a good conversation. Obviously, we're seeing it. We're up against interims and yep. midterm elections and the vitriol that's going on. Um, we're looking to this leadership to step up and act with dignity and integrity and have civil discourse. And what are we saying? Contention. Everybody's like, so we have to we have to get right. better at this. <laughs> you know, I think of my father as a World War II Marine who had lived through the Depression and my parents were amazing. Um, they were messy. They weren't perfect. They were amazing, though. And the way they put everybody first, and I think about what they would feel like today. And in those days, you could have a right. different point of view. And people enjoyed the discourse. In fact, research facilities, it gets you to a better innovation. But today we've ended the idea of that public square and that ability to have this wonderful discourse to now just having a street fight. Oh, that is such a, such an important point you make, Rose. And it's something I've thought about a lot looking back at my own family, my, my grandparents who were of that same generation. I, you know, my grandfather didn't go to college. He, he worked for the railroad. And yet I remember he read two newspapers every day. He read the Los Angeles Times and the Herald yeah. Tribune. One was a Republican paper, one was a Democratic paper. And he read them to look at both sides of, and and, and, and he and my grandmother would discuss them over, over coffee in the morning, over dinner at night, and then you watch Walter Cronkite, and you weren't allowed to speak when Walter Cronkite was speaking. 
Yeah, but it was such a different world. And, yeah. and the thing that I and I've talked about this a lot is that he didn't do it because he was an armchair intellectual or anything like that. He did it because that was the norm back then. That it was it was something that was seen as your responsibility as a citizen of a democracy. You had a responsibility to be informed and to consider the issues from both sides. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think now, and why I love what you also do uh, in your professional lives, is that business is probably the last value-added space right. where we can make a difference. I uh, love that. I mean, I I started this company with the intent to have a culture of diversity, of thought, of ways of looking at the world, um, and also diverse in the you know Asian and. African American and Colombian, and it, we just have so many different people, and it's so lovely. And I think about what we attempt to do with our clients, and that is to help them look at their differences as an opportunity to get to mm -hmm. a better place. Instead of seeing the conflict, look for the compliment. How does this person compliment me? I mean, Gavin and I, Gavin McMahon is my partner, founding partner, and he's, you know, a good 30 years younger. Um, he is someone I met at Gartner. We could not be more different. Bryce knows him. He's a classically trained engineer. He's British. He's great. We need to get Gavin on the show sometime. Yeah. yeah. He's British. He's a character in many ways. And when he first met me, uh, we couldn't be more different. Um, and at first he said to me, you know, I put people in two categories, idiot and okay. And I had you in the idiot category. And now I think you're okay. Uh, and I, I guess that was British for, and that's a compliment. Um, 21 years later, um, we are still together and, um, and we have civil discourse. We didn't always, we do now. And, it is wonderful because we see the compliment and we've stopped worrying about the differences and started thinking about them as advantages. So, you know, whether it's Lincoln's, you know, have a room full of adversaries around you, it doesn't matter how you approach it. But if everybody looks and acts like you, that conversation is going to get right. cult-like. And that's what we're seeing both in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. We're seeing cults. Um, and we can only be on social media if you think right. exactly like I do and your Twitter sounds like mine and whatever. So this is narcissism at its finest. And how do you get to a better place there? You don't. So I look at business and I say, thank God I'm in the private sector um, because I can't imagine what it would be like trying to be a leader in the public sector today. There's so much to get past. Um, and I really feel like we have to drive the change. Um, and that's my ultimate goal before I go to Shady Oaks. <laughs> You've been threatening um, to go to Shady Oaks ever no. since I met you, Rose, and you're not there yet. Not yet. But I'm 73 years old and I'm thinking at some point I'm going to be, you know, retired. And what can I do before I retire? And that is the one thing I'm hoping for that enough of the CEOs we work with are going to influence the economic forums, the Aspen Institutes, the places where we can make change. We need to make change. We've got to change the conversation in this country and we've got to change it around the world. I was quite frankly shocked. This is the first time I think in Britain 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, Bryce, because you you study this more. Well, Mar Marcus will know better than me. <laughs> that that a, a a leader was gone oh, yeah. in 45 days. Yeah, the one who held the record before that held the record because he died. So he had quite a good excuse for short termination. Okay. But yeah, okay. by okay. by history, she was okay. the shortest by a long, long way. I mean, and you look at this and you say they brought a woman prime minister in. How fabulous is that? Right around the time the queen passed away. And look at all the conversations around that and the royals and what's going on there. Um, mm. I love conversations because I eavesdrop. Even in a restaurant, I eavesdrop. I love listening to what people are talking about, what's driving the way they think. Um, and I, I really do believe that if we can change the conversation, we can make bold change one conversation at a time. I don't own that. Bill McDermott does. He's the CEO of ServiceNow, uh, was the CEO of SAP, and just was on Kramer. And the big thing around software is that you can hit a rule of 40. Uh, and I won't get into what all that means. It's an easy definition, but he got to the rule of 60. And it has everything to do with product, time to market, your profit, profitability and all of that. And he is a wonderful man. He thinks like we do. Uh, I was on the team that oh, hired wow. him at Xerox when he first came of, uh, of, of the uh, deli that he was working. Modest family out of Brooklyn. Irish Catholic family. Um, and he wrote the forward to the chocolate oh, conversation. Okay. Uh, yeah. And he says, there are very few people that I trust. Uh, and Rose is one of them to give me, you know, uh, counsel. We went to Gartner together. Um, and after Gartner, it was a bad run for him. The CEO at that time had signed a convertible note for the market cap of the business without a forge. Um, and it was stunning. It was stunning. And Bill and I were like, oh my God. So after a year, the investors came and the whole thing blew up. And Bill went with Siebel Systems, didn't work out. And he ended up at SAP as a co-CEO, then became the CEO. A lot of messy bumps along the way. But he's a remarkable CEO. From the corner deli to the corner office, <laughs> he wrote that book. Um, Recently, just recently on Kramer, and Kramer doesn't say much about anybody that's good. And he turned around, and he said, I really admire you, Bill. Um, he's one of the guys that's out there trying to change the conversation. And he said to me in his forward, Rose understands that changing the conversation, that leadership happens one bold conversation at a time, which is why I stole that for the. That's so amazing. You know, I, uh, I think you've identified both. The, pro the opportunity of, of creating better conversations in business and why we all do what we do is because we see that and that this is honestly part of the problem because I think people always say, well, why, are there, why is there no one good running for president? Why is there no one good running for prime minister? And you and I both know people who would make great presidents and prime ministers and, and in some cases have even been asked to. And they're and 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 they and they they don't want anything to do with it because they see what a what a dumpster fire politics is and how impossible it is to have good meaningful conversations in the public space and so they say not for me I'm going to stick to business and so we're left in the public space with people who who are 
are are are so in most cases so hungry for for power or, or attention that they are willing to plunge into that mess, um, no holds barred. I think that's beautifully put, Bryce. And I think one of the things that you've always said, and I greatly appreciated it, is even in Ali Malali's case, and I, I think your book, The American Icon, is one of the best Thank business you. books I've ever read. I love it. Uh, and it read like a novel, and it was what attracted me to you in the first place, um, is that Alan went through a very vulnerable time. And when he went to the Senate and he realized uh, when he got there that he didn't want to be like those other CEOs, he wanted to do it differently. And you play that out so beautifully in your book. And I've, I've referenced it so many times everywhere I've gone, uh, because that book is a conversation. It's a wonderful conversation. And red teaming right now is about helping people determine how to really take a strategy and bring it through to execution. You can't do that without conversations that are really substantive and sometimes right. conflicted. But a conflicted conversation doesn't mean it has to be a vitriolic conversation. And that's what I keep trying to push. It's not what's going on on the public stage. We see what's going on. It's disappointing to look at it um, because we look at these leaders and we'd like to look up to them. And you're right. I see people that would make wonderful presidents, but they did something in their past that will get unearthed. And before you know it, you know, they're not going to be the kind of people that will ever be able to survive it. Um, leadership is messy and we've got to be allowed to be messy. Look at Winston Churchill. He was yes, extremely absolutely. messy. And one of the greatest leaders. One could argue. Yeah. And one could argue the fact that he saved civilization. So I, um, I look at Rosa Parks. I think of her silent yes. conversation, um, just not getting up and the guy coming over and said, you will be arrested. And she said, you, you can do Absolutely. that. <laughs> you know, but I got to do what's right here. Um, and Zelensky yes. right now is, is the leader of our time. What was his conversation? Please, I don't need a ride. Help me save my I'm going to hang right here. And everybody followed that leader. They're coming from all over the world to support him. And Ukrainians who are living all over the world, putting their lives in danger, making bold change one conversation at a time. I think he's remarkable. And a master of conversation, as you say. I mean, he is in, in many ways, next to his personal courage, his his superpower is is the way he frames oh. conversations. And I've been struck by this when in the early weeks of the war, when he was going and addressing the leaders and the parliaments, the congresses of all the countries, he was so careful to speak to each one in their story. You talk about stories. You know, when he spoke to the British, he spoke with reference to the to the Blitz. When he spoke to, you know, uh, the United States, he spoke about freedom from tyranny. When he spoke you know, every country he spoke in their narrative and about to their story and tied their story to the Ukraine, the story of Ukraine. And you could see how it just it just like cut through and 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 went right to people's hearts and made them act. Amazing. And what you just described, Bryce, he went to the concern that every one of those customers had uh, yeah. countries had lived through. And he established a common worldview yep. among all of them. 
to finally get them to level up to what he needed to do. Um, that is an extraordinary gift. Not everybody has it. Uh, I will say that in our book, uh, we teach people how to have those conversations. We teach people how to navigate them, how to have a difficult conversation without creating yes. an enemy, how to, how to sustain a relationship at the same time, having a different point of view. Um, and it's, it's important. And I believe that everybody needs, I'm still a student of it. I'm a student of leadership. Um, I'm, as I said, 73 years old, I'm still learning. And I really value leaders who care about this stuff uh, and take it seriously. And when you're doing your red teaming, it's a series Absolutely. of conversations right. to an end point. We need that. We need that. And people don't understand that the art of a really good conversation, like the one you described with Zelensky, it's so artful. It's so wonderful. And why? Because right. he prepared. He didn't do a flyby. He prepared in the same way Gandhi did when he stood Absolutely. up in front of Parliament. This is stuff that we need people to want to do. So while everybody's uh, dealing with methods and tools and process and all the rest of it, all important, that's all about management, but leadership is all about conversation. That's what I keep telling people. You manage the work, you lead that. people. You can't manage people. They do not want to be managed. I hate being managed. Um, and But they do want to be well-led. And let everybody manage their own work. Have a good conversation and let everybody else manage their own work. The reason you have to jump in and manage other people's work, because you didn't have a good conversation. It wasn't clear, they didn't know what to do, and now you're in there doing Great it. Great advice, Rose. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we will talk more about conversations and strategy. Stay tuned. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So, Rose, before the break, you mentioned that red teaming, red team thinking was a series of conversations. I, I love that analogy. Do you want to expand on that a bit? What do you mean by it? Yeah, I'm thinking that when people are mapping out a strategy, um, there needs to be a series of conversations that take place around what they're doing, why they're doing it, you know, the what and the why are as important as how we do something. And you can't get to that how until you really understand where am I going? Why am I going there? What am I asking people to do? And then ultimately getting into strategy. Um, I had one gentleman, Dr. Peter Kastenbaum, since passed away. He was one of the founders of the Economic Forum. He said to me, you know, people look at strategy as some mystical thing. What it really is, is several abstractions away from what you do every day. Um, and an understanding of when you're in the actual operation, 
of your everyday professional life and you realize what's working, what's not. The what's working, you need to accelerate. The what's not, you need to figure out what do I need to do differently? And that ultimately becomes a way to map strategy. Um, and strategy and vision aren't synonymous, right? So right. vision is a dream. Strategy is the map between your current reality to reaching that dream. And so it takes conversations to see that happen. And I got a lot of ADDC level executives that don't want to have those yep. conversations. They want to sit down and outsource it and say, Bryce, Marcus, here's what we want to do. Map out a strategy for me. Boom, let's go. Right. It doesn't work that way. Okay. I cannot outsource that. You've got to participate. You got to get in it. You got to be with it. I'm going to tell you one very funny story, and, and this probably relates to your question, Marcus. Um, I worked with Interpublic Group of Companies, fabulous. They own McCann, Deutsch, Footcomb Belding, Draft, all the big agencies. And a group of planners, uh, and if you know anything about strategic planners in the agency world, they all wear black t-shirts. They're very clever. Most of them are more clever than they're smart, uh, all the good guys. And they, and they kind of, you know, parade around. Um, not all of them, but I'm, I hope nobody's <laughs> Everybody's around. watching. Anyway. Keep going. <laughs> a, guy, a guy I really admired, uh, Bruce Nelson, who taught me a lot about what it means to market a company. He was the CMO of Interpublic, and I learned a lot from him. He was in a meeting with UPS, and they were trying to figure out their competitive strategy to get ahead of FedEx, because at that time, FedEx was you know, really eating their lunch. Um, and one of these sort of clever planners turned around and said, well, you know, you're kind of a brown company. And the COO happened to be in the room and he pounded the desk. I've got this in the book, this story. And he said, well, let me tell you what brown can do for you. And the rest, as they say, gentlemen, is history. Because conversation, that conversation changed the entire cycle of what happened with UPS. Brown became a new black. chic. You saw the brown uniform and the yeah. brown truck and the brown packages, and they were a logistics company, and all of a sudden they became the logistics company, and they outpaced. And that their became their tagline, too. Why? What can brown do for you? Yeah. One conversation, okay, in a moment of passion that led to a strategy that changed where they were in their competitive landscape. That's why I think it's a series of conversations. I think you've got, I know Bryce, he has a, a very good mind and a, a wonderful heart and he's, he's human. And I see that in you too, Marcus, at a short time. And that humanity allows you to have these conversations in a way that help people. Move you said it, Rose, forward. you said in a moment of passion. Uh, and I, I think, and we, yes. saw, we did a class last night with 20 people. And enabling those people to come together, all strangers, no trust collectively, but to allow them to have healthy conflict in a safe environment, challenged by us in a humane and you know safe nature, allowed their passion to service. Yeah. Where normally, and we see this in the workplace, people, you sort of keep a dampener on your passions, don't you? You don't want to raise your voice and bring up your passion for fear of being you know, taken out. You, know, you don't want to put your head above the parapet. So I think if you can enable that passion, that's when the good stuff comes out. That's when, as, as was it David Marquet called it, the thought juice leadership right, qualities. Yeah, the thought juice. 
yeah, come out because you're passionate. And that's, that's when your best things come out of your brain, your mouth. And if that's been halted or stopped through a lack of quality conversation, then those one-liners that become business-changing, life-changing strap lines are going to remain dormant inside that individual and wasted. Well, you know, and you're absolutely right. And yeah. Rose, when you were talking about having conversation, you know, the red teaming being co about conversations, at the end of the day, most of the tools that we teach are tools that are designed to do two things, have structured conversations so that we don't veer off into tangents that, that are irrelevant. But more yeah. important than that, to have conversations that, that, create, if necessary, artificial psychological safety when psychological safety doesn't exist in with, within the organization so that people can, by using anonymity and things like that, can share what they really have been wanting to say, can react, can tell people what they really feel about ideas and stuff, but in a way that is non-confrontational, non-conflicting in a negative way that is safe for them, that isn't going to be career-ending. And by having those conversations that way, you rapidly get to the meat of the matter and you, you do two things. One is you surface ideas that have been kind of suppressed before because people are afraid to share them, but you also do something else, which I think is so, goes right back to the story that you told about, about the death by chocolate party, which is creating alignment. Because if you have these conversations together, yeah. you create alignment. And Marcus has a great story that he tells about, about, uh, why don't you share with Rose your story about six strategic questions? Because I think she'll love it about one of the first times you use that with a client. Yeah. So I was invited in by a large international bank to spend a couple of days about strategic training, strategic understanding, and take them through a few of our tools and techniques. And I'd gone down the day before to meet them all. And they gave me this very large weighty tomb that they'd written. And this was their strategy. They were going to launch out to 25,000 people the following week. So I took that home at night, had a, good, had a good read in bed, went back in the next morning and we taught them a couple of tools to kick off with. And the first one was Think, Write, Share, where you think about the question before answering, then you write the answer down and then you share it. So I taught them that tool very quickly and they said, right, now we're going to look at this tool called Six Strategic Questions. And the first question is, what's the problem you're trying to solve or your plan is trying to solve? And I held up this document and I said, right, eight executives in the room, I said, right, Using Think Right Chair, you tell me what problem is this plan trying to solve before we roll it out to the masses on the Monday. And they all took a minute to think, and then they all wrote down with their little Sharpies and Post-it notes. And I said, great, now let's share. We started off with Bob, and Bob read his out. And then Susan read hers, and then Steve read his, and each one was different to the former. And each one kept looking at the other one going, hang on a minute. And we got to all eight, and not one had the same answer. And I said, I'll ask another question. I said, it's rhetorical. Right, chocolate exactly. That's why I was thinking of this. Absolutely, a chocolate this conversation. This is a classic example of a chocolate conversation in yeah. the workplace. It is, 100%. And I said, okay, I'll ask another question. It's rhetorical. How many of you have all read this document? And I said, don't even answer. I said, I know none of you have. Only I in this room have read it. I said, because when I went home last <laughs> night and read this, I saw eight stovepipe documents that have been sandwiched together using Microsoft Word, that's it. So none of you have had a conversation with each other to blend this plan into an outcome. I said, so let me ask you another conversation. If we send this plan out on Friday, ready for delivery on Monday to 25,000 people globally, what's going to happen? 
and they're just sort of dawning on their faces like we're going to create absolute chaos absolutely yeah absolute chaos so we spent the rest of the day replanning they got an extra two weeks before they sent it out and they rewrote but the first thing was going back to what's the problem we're actually trying to solve here and we spent the whole day working that out to get that clarity to get the understanding and to have communication of alignment creation rather than confusion and chaos and i want you to know rose when i when i created this tool six strategic questions that first question that Marcus just shared there, what is the problem we're trying to solve? I was thinking of you and I was thinking of the chocolate conversation when I added that. Because I remember from you and, and the wonderful conversations you had about this, how important it is to start by getting people aligned on the same page. Yeah. And people often think aligned means alike, does not. Okay. So we don't need you to be alike. We just need you to be aligned. What does that mean? It means it's, we got to find some common ground. Um, I was speaking to you guys about a story before I got here. We had recently just done a three-day offsite with a group of people in South Florida. And the interesting piece was I adore the CEO. He's charming. He's smart. He's human. He's the kind of CEO you want to get behind. Um, we did a, they did an internal mm -hmm. cult survey of their employees. We did what we call rapid insight. We have conversations with everyone that's going to be involved uh, in the actual offsite. And then we go down into the organization a little and have some select conversations there. So it was interesting. They all came in and with this idea in mind that um, they basically were not aligned and they knew it. But I said, what's interesting is where you are aligned is on every one of these touch bases, your cult survey, the interviews with the people that are working for you and yours, you all have the same level of confusion around the same set of things. You're aligned. <laughs> um, and, and they said, yes, um, they came out of two and a half days and we set up three conversations. Every day was a conversation. The first conversation is who am I as a leader? And we have a particular survey they take that tells them where they are and who they are. The second conversation is, what is the purpose of our company? Why do we exist? Um, the third conversation was, what are the tough and difficult choices we need to make to get that to a place where we can execute on it and we can actually turn that purpose into a solid strategy? Um, and then on the very, very last day, we had to change the operating model and speak to how are we going right. to operate. They recently went to a town hall and we've gotten all kinds of feedback. Thank God we have this meeting. The CEO was eloquent. The CFO was terrific. He said to us, I know I need to change. I'm not going to apologize for the way I've been. I don't need to do that. And I laughed because I love that about him but I am gonna change. As I realize I need to change the conversation. They got in and people felt, we understand now, we have clarity around our purpose and our direction, and now we can go out and do our jobs. This whole idea of micromanagement, there's no question. You know, I have said to people often, if you can't step up, I'll step in. There's no question. You step up as a leader, I'm going to step in if you can't. 
But you don't want to micromanage people because when you micromanage people, it's because they're not well-led and they don't understand the work they need to be doing. So when you guys go out and lay that out, what you did for them, Marcus, is those 25,000 people got saved from being micromanaged because they wouldn't have known what the heck they were doing and why. You know why? I know Simon Sinek spent a long time on the why, and you know he does a great job with that. At the end of the day, everybody needs to know why are we doing this? Where are we going? What exactly are we going to do, and how can we right. get it done? We have to answer these questions. It's just that simple. So that's called having a complete leadership conversation. Nice, and it, and it is so important because. You know, I love what you said before the break about you can't have casual conversations anymore. Every conversation matters. And so if that's the case, and, and, and I believe that it is, and I think a lot of leaders have learned that lesson the hard way in the past few years. If that's the case, then it really cultivating the skills that you need to have those conversations to be comfortable with getting questioned, to be able to handle the ambiguity that comes from hearing different points of view, to be able to take that pause that you talk about rather than just react in the moment. Marcus has a great, a great little tool that he teaches called Stop, Breathe, Think. Very simple. So yeah, now as you were saying earlier, <laughs> these leaders who react. You know, that's the yeah. wrong thing to do. You know, you, you need to take that time and, and it can take seconds. Just just pause. Think about what your response needs to be, not your reaction. But getting skilled up in these things, developing these muscles becomes an essential investment in time, in energy, and, and, and if necessary, in money, I think, for leaders today. So much so, Bryce, we, we know how much it costs leaders when they have a bad conversation, okay? We refer to it, Marcus, as the intention impact loop. I have an intention. Uh, I have an investment I need to make in this conversation. Those are the two things you can control. The interaction, you only get half <laughs> of that. And the impact is the result of whether that interaction was good or bad. The investment of time is maybe just as simple as what you said. Stop, breathe, think, and then have a conversation. Um, this flyby or this quick response, it'll kill you every time. I've seen people, I, I know a woman, God bless her soul, I loved her dearly, worked for Pepsi. She got something on her Blackberry, this was 30 years ago, and she fired Ooh. off an answer. It blew up and she got fired. And she called hysterical. And I said, what possessed you in the middle of a meeting to react so quickly without thinking and send that off? What would make you do that? I don't know. And this bit that we have to respond, you have to respond, ask a question. That's what I always say. If you feel that people aren't gonna think you're responding quickly enough, then ask a question. That's a great tool, simple little tool that can stall for time and get you a better place to then respond responsibly. Um, because there's a difference between reaction right. and response. You know, 
Cause comes from the etymology of re able to be responsible in my response. That's where it comes from. Reaction is reenacting someone else's action. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. So I tell people all the time, when you're concerned that you're not responding, ask a question. I'm a little confused by this. Can you say more? They oh, you responded. <laughs> That's why the tagline of, of this podcast is bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and we're very like-minded, which is really very special. We refer to ourselves as the how company um, because a lot of people can tell you what. Um, and we try to help you figure out how um, by going through this process. Um, I... I see chocolate conversations across every place I go, even in personal life. Um, and this can help anybody. Look at how many chocolate conversations we have with our offspring or our significant other. Um, it's, it's very difficult and we have to figure it out, you know, because we do come into this world. Um, we bio in with our brilliance and our muddy shoes and there's nobody that escapes the ladder Nobody's purely brilliant. Um, I told one very smart guy who's a difficult investor and always snaps at people and makes them afraid. He's considered one of the most feared investors. And he asked me why I felt the way I did about a certain thing. And I said, because I just don't believe for a minute that when your parents brought you into this world, it was strictly about the circulation of capital. <laughs> I think you're bigger than that. I think you're bigger than that. And what could he say? You know, he looked at me and he it was just like, I don't know what to say. The facts are, we all have our technical expertise. And I talk about this in the book, and Bryce is aware of this. It's a method that I built a long time ago. But it's your technical expertise is what gets you into the game. It's your subject matter understanding. It's your skill. It's your competency. It's your experience. Then there's the social aspect of your leadership. How well do you socialize ideas? How well do you connect ideas one to another and then to people? Can you connect what you know in a context to people? Lastly is, are you positioning this in a way that that person wins as much as you do? Which is considered the political sphere. Political has got a very unfortunate impact on the world today. The word seems a little dicey. But we all need to be able to do the political thing well in a corporation. It's not about posturing, it's about positioning. That is the difference. And so in this realm, years ago, I was with the CFO at Xerox, the CIO, both celebrity CIO, CIO, CIOs, and our CEO was a very introverted man. Uh, and they put him with Les Elberthal from EDS, and the two of them sat in a room and didn't speak to each other because both of them were introverts. So somebody had to come in and facilitate the conversation. New Gerstner came into the building, and at the time he was bigger than life. And the next thing I know, he's got his arm around my CEO, both Irish Catholics, one from a very pedigreed family and the other from a working class family, my CEO. As far as he was concerned, this guy gave him a ticket to the show. We were outsourcing our legacy equipment 
And the worst possible deal we could have made at that time was to do it with IBM. He came back to the CFO, he came back to the CIO, and he said, we're going with IBM. They were freaked out completely. EDS was offering a much better deal. So they call me in, you're the chief transformation officer, what should we do about this? I said, it has nothing to do with being a transformation officer. It has everything to do about you having the wrong conversation. Uh, why am I having the wrong, this is before I wrote books, before I even did chocolate, this was way before. Why am I having the wrong conversation? I said, do you have any idea what's attracting him to IBM? You think it's the dollars and the deal? He's an engineer and a finance guy. He knows the deal's bad. It's because he wants to be in the club with Lou. It's all political, social and political. It has nothing to do with the technical. So what should we do? I said, you got to change the conversation. You got to go in and say, look, you give Lou this deal. He will know he's got a fan. If you go in and explain to him why you're giving EDS the deal, he knows he has a formidable colleague, someone who would make the same decision that he's made. And Lou, don't buy our junk. Let's do something strategic together. Let's give the junk to EDS. Uh, I wrote it all down for him. I said, here's the technical reason, the social way to do it, and the political way to position it. And it won the day. And that's what dawned on me at the time that I came up with these things called the spheres, <laughs> the spheres of leadership, technical, social, political. We forget that, especially today. And Marcus, you, Bryce, and I grew up in a different generation. These younger leaders, they're on Zoom. They're on all these different virtual platforms. They are working in silos. They're fully invested in their technical expertise. And they're not taught how to have a correspondence, a conversation, whether it's on PowerPoint or it's on a chat or it's in a text message or it's in an email or it's one-on-one. -on -one. They're not taught. So they have it totally in the technical sphere. And when they don't win, they don't understand why. Wow. That is so powerful, Rose. You have given us so much to think about. You have given our listeners so much to think about, our viewers so much to think about. It's 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 like a, a crash course in leadership and communications right here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. It is a pleasure and I feel privileged to be on your podcast. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.